That's my guest singer Richard Conrad singing the last lyric of the very last song in his final Boston song recital last year, Home Sweet Home, a very familiar tune written by Sir Henry Bishop with William Merrill at the piano. Coming up in a couple of minutes, Richard Conrad reflects back on a singing career that took off like a skyrocket with the help of Joan Sutherland and Richard Bonning. Along the way, he'll talk about Gilbert and Sullivan and Noel Coward. In fact, Richard also tells us a joke that made Noel Coward fall down laughing and about his unusual men's room encounter with none other than Adlai Stevenson. Now, I ask you, what other podcast offers you this kind of programming? Hi, everyone. This is Andy Moore, and you're listening to Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast in which I share with you some of the people, places, things, and ideas that populate my particular treasure trove and that I think you'll enjoy, too. It's August, and I'm not actually at my home sweet home in San Francisco, also known as Worldwide Headquarters and Multimedia Studios of Treasure Trove Productions, but rather I'm in the middle of a short beach vacation at a place cutely called the Sand and Surf in Santa Cruz, California, one of my favorite beach towns near San Francisco. True to form, it's cool and foggy this August morning, and we're hoping, with fingers crossed, for sunshine later today. Meanwhile, let's go back through the fog of history to 1963, when an unknown classical singer named Richard Conrad was just beginning his career in Boston, Massachusetts. I made my debut in 1961, and um, in early 1963, Joan Sutherland came to Boston, where I was living, and um, my great friend and indeed mentor, the American composer Dan Pinkham, um, was playing harpsichord, and um, we still don't know who said this, but t- t- um, about a month or so before that, I had done a concert uh, in which I had sung a very Floridoria of Monteverdi from Orfeo, and uh, because of that, my training was this uh, was a, an old-fashioned Florid style of singing, and um, I didn't think it was particularly difficult to do, but um, it made a a modest sensation, I can, if I can use that word, with the public and, and also with the newspapers. And um, in Joan Sutherland's concert, uh, some instrumentalists who had played in my concert said to her when they had a break, hey, Miss Sutherland, we got a guy who sings just like you here in Boston. And Danny Pinkham said to uh, Sutherland's husband, who was conducting, you really are, yeah, you really are, hear this guy. And um, I got a telephone call from uh, Sutherland's um, secretary saying that Ms. Sutherland, Joan Sutherland's secretary, uh, Ms. Sutherland and Mr. Bonnie would like to hear you. And I thought it was one of my friends, you know, giving me the routine. <laughs> and so I said, well, I'm not sure that I'd really be able to do that, this kind of thing. <laughs> and there was this dead silence at the end of the telephone. And I realized, oh, my God, this is legit. <laughs> 
imagine. The jury is instructed to uh, ignore the last statement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Could we rewind on this one? Anyway, to to make this long story unbearable, um, I met them, and they um, couldn't hear me for a while because they were going off to to something somewhere. I don't remember where they were off to. Uh, but uh, in two months, I was going to sing uh, a piece that Dan Ping had written for me, a requiem, in New York, and they were also going to be there at that time. And so um, we made an appointment. They said, well, please call us when you're there. I said, fine, I'll do that. Um, so I went to New York, and I thought, good God, this is ridiculous. I've made a debut, and now I'm going to uh, do something with Joan Sutherland. This doesn't make sense. Um, so um, in New York the great Swiss tenor, Yves Crenot, who, um, by the way, who still is alive at 106. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he and I had made a recording, um, with, again with Daniel Pinkham, of books to Huda Cantatas for two tenors. And he was a great friend of, of and colleague of Joan Sutherland from uh, David Gleinborn, where he was a major star and she was just a beginner, you know. And um, so he came to the, the concert in New York and he asked me what I was doing, and I said, well, I'm, I'm supposed to do an audition for Joan Sutherland, but I, I don't know whether I really should do it. And he said, of course you should do it, and I'm going with you. He literally took me by the hand, and up we went to uh, their apartment. And um, I remember whether it was just the thought of this being completely hopeless or the most extraordinary thing that probably was ever to happen to me. I went beyond my possibility as a singer. Hmm. And um, right away, right on the spot, they offered me a recording of uh, Handel's Julius Caesar. Well, I was just absolutely flabbergasted. But needless to say, I said, fine. And then two weeks later, um, Richard Bonning uh, called me and said that he was interested in, in a mezzo-soprano, um, from California named Marilyn Horn, and he thought that um, we could do a very interesting recording with her and Joan and me. And that turned into the age of Bel Canto, um, which kind of put, won the Italian Critics Award, and it became a very important recording. Uh, the gramophone calls it one of the milestones of the history of the gramophone. I mean, good Lord. And that put me on, on the international map. You know, no one had ever heard of me, and then all of a sudden I was, I was reviewed in every country in the world.
And then the next year, I um, decided I'd go to Italy and see if I could study there. And I did, and stayed there 13 years, believe it or not. And I sang there. I, I, tried, to, um, I tried to get what everybody um, wanted in my voice, which was um, a ringing top voice. And, but it was just impossible. Uh, you know, I, I wish someone had just sat me down and said, you'll never get that. You're not a real tenor. And um, so I kept trying, and I went to uh, one teacher after another in Italy, thinking, you know, boy, if, if anyone's going to be able to teach me how to get ringing top notes, it'll be these Italians. And they couldn't. And I guess they were uh, sort of impressed uh, with the fact that I was on the radio but those recordings were played on the radio almost five or six times a week. So I, you know, no, I guess no one had the courage to sit down and say, you have to make a decision. You're either going to sing with a head voice top, or you're going to have to go and retrain your natural baritone voice. So um, when I came back to America in 1980, um, I thought about this. I didn't like the direction that my voice was taking at that time. And so I got out all my old notebooks, and I sort of retrained my own voice, a very dangerous thing to do, but uh, happily it worked pretty well. Um, and um, I was uh, even better, but on, on the level of those recordings with Sutherland. Uh, but that's a, a long time. That's, what, what, 17 years later. Anyway, I did get my, my voice back, and, and I had a year of, of very good performances um, singing the way, basically the way that I did in 1963, but better, with a little bit more resonance in the top voice, though certainly not um, Italian ring by any means. Uh, I was, uh, again, with Richard Bonning and, and Joan Sutherland, I was just, but I was just a house guest at their place in Switzerland, and Richard Bonning said, um, uh, oh, some friends, some neighbors are coming over for drinks. I said, fine. So, you know, I got a little dressed up, and I'm sitting there, and Noel Coward walks through the hedge. I just about <laughs> passed out. I really did. I didn't know he lived next door to them. And um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry to have to tell you that I didn't handle it very well. I sort of came on with a kind of a pseudo-sophistication, which bored the hell out of him. And... Um, I could see that I was boring him, and God, it was on the side of the, the mountains in Switzerland. I wanted to just jump off and land on the lake. Um, but happily, um, I told him a, a joke, which most people didn't think was funny. Tom Lehrer thought it was funny. And um, I told him his joke, and he died. He absolutely died laughing. And uh, then, then he couldn't get enough of me. <laughs> um, so we spent the rest of the evening, and I told him all kinds of jokes. And uh, I kept making him laugh. Can you imagine making Noel Coward laugh? Do you remember what the joke was? All right. Well, it's about two uh, taxi drivers um, who were in, in the suburbs, and they're waiting for the train to, to come in from New York City. One's a yellow cab, and one's a checker cab. And um, only one person gets off the train, this enormous fat lady, absolutely huge. And she gets into the checker cab, and the yellow cab driver is so angry that she didn't get into his cab, and he's got nothing to do because the next train doesn't come for another hour. So he follows the checker cab, and the minute there's a red light, 
he bumps up against him, and the second the light changes, he bap, bap, gets on the horn, and he, you could just see the chickens starting to get red-faced. So they get out sort of on the open highway, and he pulls up, um, he passes and pulls up and opens the window on the other side, and he says, hey, checker, where'd you get that fat lady? And the checker pulls down his window, he says, you can just kiss that fat lady's ass. That's telling him, fat lady. <laughs> A lot of people don't think that's funny. Thank God Noel Coward did. <laughs> he was just so amusing and so kind and so... Um, and of course, I mean, he's, he's, he's representing the whole 20th century theater, you know. I mean, he started... He, I think he was, he was born just before the turn of the century, and he was on the stage before, by the time he was six or something. And he had success in every single thing that he whether it was poetry or prose or plays or films, as an actor, as a cabaret, as a, I mean, really, whatever he touched turned to gold. I mean, the wonderful film he made, um, uh, To This We Serve, I said To Which, sorry, In Which We Serve. He wrote it, he directed it, he starred in it, he wrote the music for it. I mean, come on, and it's just a masterpiece even today. Well, I remember um, a film that he played a very small role in. I don't know if you remember this film, but he was in prison the whole film. He was a criminal mastermind oh, right. that was in prison. And his, his gang was out there pulling off this huge heist in Italy. And they were posing as a film production company. And they got the whole town involved in this film. I remember that one of the funniest movie scenes ever that I can recall is when they asked some of the people in the town to be extras in the film. And they said, now when we say action, just walk across the square like you were going about your normal everyday business. <laughs> the director says, action. The whole town runs screaming into the square, <laughs> waving at the camera. <laughs> it was hilarious. The sun is shining where clouds have been. Maybe it's something to do spring I feel no older than 17 maybe it's something to do with spring a something I can't express a sort of lilt in the air a lyrical loveliness seems Behavior is most obscene. Maybe it's something to do with spring. Another one of your specialties is the work of Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh yes, yes, yes. I've I've always been a Gilbert and Sullivan fan, and that's um, I'm 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 a great fan of um, Arthur Sullivan. Um, I always feel that he sort of gets the short end of the stick. Uh, because, you know, with Gilbert and Sullivan, um, the amateur performances, uh, both in England and in America, are, I, I mean, unbelievable. Um, and it's wonderful to go to the Unitarian Church and, and see your aunts and your cousins making fools out of themselves with this hilarious uh, repertory. But, you know, they usually have piano, they don't have the uh, full orchestra, and Sullivan was a great, great uh, composer. And... Um, uh, when you have the full orchestra playing, oh boy, it's terrific. It's just terrific. So I decided 
that when I became, went into being an impresario in 1980, that uh, that was one of the things that I wanted to do. I wanted to have people hear that uh, Sullivan was uh, half of that uh, partnership and that uh, I felt that he uh, needed to get his due. And, uh, and I also uh, put real opera singers, happily those who could act, uh, in the roles so that you could hear those beautiful melodies sung um, by real voices. A, a lot of times people talk the music, and, and um, Sullivan was parodying the operatic traditions um, of the mid-19th century, mid and late, later 19th century. And if you can't sing the, the operas that are being parodied, you really don't get a very good parody. Now, did you see the movie Hurley Burley? And if so, what did you think of, of that portrait of, of those times and those people? I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I have no idea what the movie was about, but it was beautifully done. And um, the only problem was, uh, if you can call it a problem, is that the director has a company of players, all of whom are wonderful actors, but most of whom couldn't sing at all. I thought that both the guys were wonderful, and the man, the actor playing Gilbert, was just rather frightening because he looked so much like him, so much like the pictures I've seen of Gilbert. In short, when I know what is meant by Mamelon and Ravelin, when I can tell at sight a Mauser rifle from a javelin, when such affairs as sorties and surprises I'm more wary at, and when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat, when I have learned what progress has been made in modern gunnery, when I know more of tactics than a novice in a nunnery. <laughs> in short, when I've a smattering of elemental strategy. <laughs> You'll say it better, Major General, has never sat at For me, military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But silly matters, vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern nature general. It was at a concert. Um, at a place called Castle Hill, which is a great big, big uh, old mansion right on the ocean that is now uh, uh, made probably as a state park. And um, they had an Italian garden, and the great uh, Eleanor Stieber, who I'm very happy uh, to say uh, was a colleague of mine and then later a very, very close friend, um, was giving a concert there. So I went to hear her, and... I was with my pianist, and we went out to dinner, and um, 
I always drink a lot of water at, at meals. And we also had a bottle of wine. And, and then we realized we were late for the concert. And so we rushed and we got there just in time. She was coming on the stage as we were coming into the hall. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got to go to the bathroom. Oh, I've got to pee. I've, I've got my bladders b- bursting. And the first part of the concert was just torture for me. And um, so um, finally she got to the intermission, and, and as she was running off the stage, I was tearing for the bathroom. And I went in. The bathroom was very small. There were only three urinals. And I saw there was somebody standing at one of these urinals. And I thought, oh, God, because um, – <laughs> I had this kind of thing, if there's anybody within, you know, 10 square miles, I can't pee. Uh. So I'm standing there, and I'm trying so hard to concentrate. I was concentrating as I have never concentrated on anything in my life, pretending I was alone in the desert, I was alone in the forest, I was alone in my own bathroom. And I look up to my right, and this person is Adelaide Stevenson. (laughs) I was a big, big fan of Adlai Stevenson. I think that uh, America um, made a major mistake in not electing him as president. Well, I almost died. And then I, I, so I'm saying, just concentrate. It doesn't matter who it is. You are in pain here. And so I'm trying to concentrate. And somebody comes into the next urinal. And, and I see him looking at me. And finally, this guy says to me, Aren't you Richard Conrad? <laughs> and I looked at him. Obviously, this pained expression on my face. I said, um, yes. And he said, oh, God, could I have your autograph? <laughs> and I felt like, you know, I wasn't fast enough to say, you know, the guy next to me is really famous. Why don't you get his? And you could both go outside, and I could pee. <laughs> I wish Richard well in his retirement. I thank him very much for talking to us from his home in Maine, and I'd like to wish him a happy birthday this August 12th. Now here's an update on the contest and drawing for the free iPod that I announced in episode 12. You know, so few listeners have entered so far that I'm extending the time period during which you can phone my listener call-in line and say the secret word to become eligible for the drawing for the iPod. Now, I've spoken to people who listened to the episode and who remember me mentioning this contest, but who didn't call and enter. Folks, this contest has about the best odds of any contest you could probably find. So please call the following number and simply say your first name and then the secret word, which, if you don't remember, occurs 18 minutes and 20 seconds into episode 12. Here's the number to call. Please write it down and then call 415-508-408. That's 415-508-4084. Now I'll leave you with an unreleased 1998 recording of Richard Conrad singing part of the Noel Coward Waltz, I'll See You Again. And I'll see you again in a little while with the next episode of Andy's Treasure Trove featuring none other than Orson Welles. As my dad used to say, I kid you not. Meanwhile, you have your directives. Number one. Call the number I gave you and say the magic word to be eligible for the free iPod. And two, tell three friends about Andy's treasure trove. Thanks very much for listening.
Reserved, Andy Moore and Treasure Trove Productions.